Welcome back. This is Roy with Air Pro Coaching coming to you with episode number 13. And we go on the road to interview Dr. Val Valley. She is a clinical sports psychologist working at the IMG Academy, working with all types of athletes. And we wanted to steal some of her time because we, we talk a lot about in these podcasts about the physical approach, nutrition, strength, but we, we, we seldom talk about probably one of the most important limiters of most people, and that's their mindset or their mental approach. We wanted to give you a few tools that you could implement tomorrow uh, in building your, um, I call it mental toolbox. Um, the more tools you have in that, the greater chance for success. I, I believe that we're leaving 30 to 60% of our potential on the table by not being mentally strong. So most people only reach about 40% of their potential and the mental approach is how they can um, close that gap. And Dr. Val is awesome. She, she kills it on this interview. She gives great information, tools that you could take away right away. Uh, and the, I think the best part of Dr. Val is that she is a practitioner. She's a high-end athlete. She's not one of these um, clinical people who are only book smart or preaching it, but they're not living it. She lives it. She is a. Um, she hired me at the beginning of the year to coach her. So I've coached her for a year, um, and she is a high-end athlete, national champ. She won national champs. If you look at my last podcast, a few um, um, on the case review. And we talked about a multi-sport athlete who won nationals. This is her. She is the one that did that. Um, I did not want to reveal that without her permission. I also did not want to steal her knowledge until the end of the year because I wanted to, I don't know, for the lack of a better term, vet her. Because the people that we bring into our podcast, we want to make sure that they're practitioners. We brought Ken Vita in. He's a master's national champ. We, we're as we bring uh, people in we want them to be practitioners I don't want to I'm not bringing theorists into this I'm not bringing people who are educated but they don't practice it so dr. Val um, is not also somebody who um, lives it and and teaches it um, and so the words that come out of her mouth have a lot of value in my opinion now we are on the scene at the bikery in st. Pete so the audio has some distraction in the background but we thought it was a great um, time to steal uh, an hour of Dr. Val's time. We were uh, waiting for uh, uh, Bob Roll and Bobby Julik to show up. They were um, doing a little talk uh, at the bikery. There was an event on Sunday. So this interview happened on Saturday. On Sunday, we got to ride with some legends. So we got to ride with Bobby Julik, third in the Tour de France. We got to ride with Bob Key, who is uh, a great rider, super phenomenal athlete, and uh, the voice of the Tour de France. He's on, uh, you'll see him. Uh, all over the tour and then um, George Hancapi made a surprise appearance so we were able to ride with him about six of my athletes uh, we we uh, we got to do about 60 miles we pushed it pretty hard I think they were surprised um, we had a good time and, and uh, I know all my athletes uh, that was probably the highlight of, of probably their cycling career at this point to get to ride with three legends uh, uh, and just to mix it up in a non um, really just like a training ride it was really fun so anyway nonetheless this is a great interview um, I hope you guys uh, enjoy it listen in and if you have any questions hit us up on Instagram Facebook uh, if it's something you have a question for Dr. Val go ahead and post it I'm sure she will be willing to answer it I'll send it to her she's not really big on social media which is uh, great for her, um, but she did give us this opportunity to listen in on some uh, super knowledge. So I hope you guys uh, learn a lot, and as always, up your watts.
Welcome back to AeroPro Coaching. Uh, this is Roy, and uh, this podcast, um, we're bringing to you a guest, spe- very special guest, Dr. Val Valori. Valley. Valley, Dr. Val Valley. She is a sports, I'm going to mess this up, a sports psychologist, psychologist a PhD. She works at the IMG Academy. Um, this last year, uh, I worked with her. Um, she hired me as her coach, uh, and it was, uh, it was a great experience to work with her. So I thought bringing her in and talking a little bit about her journey with uh, the training, but also her journey with um, like where she came from, her background, and I'm gonna hit her up with a bunch of Q&A because I have a lot of athletes who could uh, definitely benefit from her knowledge. And we are here um, on site at uh, the bikery um, doing this podcast, and so um, Bob Roll's coming in today, and we figure we'd jump in, uh, steal some time with Val. She lives in St. Pete right now. Uh, working at the IMG Academy. So I want to welcome Val, Dr. Val uh, here. So Dr. Val, tell us a little bit of, about yourself. Yeah, thanks Roy. Um, so just to clarify, I'm not a PhD, I'm a PsyD. So PsyD is a doctor of psychology, PhD is a doctor of philosophy, slightly different training model. Um, but I'm a sports psychologist and what that means is that I'm a clinical psychologist by training who specializes in working with athletes. Um, so I work um, along the whole continuum of mental health from diagnosis and treating the mental illness on the one hand to using psychological skills to optimize performance on the other hand. Nice. So with that, let's start back. Where, where, where are you from? Yeah, I'm actually from right here in South St. Pete, um, born and raised. Um, my parents were first-generation Italian immigrants, um, so they had no athletic background. They didn't do any kind of competitive sports, but um, they got my brother and I into swimming because they thought that's an important thing, you know, here, you know, with water surrounding our state. And so, yeah, I learned to swim. I'm right here at like North Shore Pool, and um, have been swimming competitively ever since. And. Did you grow up swimming as, what, what age did you start swimming? Yeah, I started at three, you know, so just regular kind of like, you know, you, you know, just like lessons, you know, safety lessons. And then from there, by five, I was kind of at the youth, like the earliest kind of like, you know, um, I don't know, team you could get into when we were doing little meets, you know, summer swim league stuff. And, and just really just kind of never stopped throughout high school after that. And then in high school you swam then? Yeah, I swam competitively throughout, um, really from five all the way to 18. Um, you know, I was, I don't know, um, I was better than average, but not one of those people who was destined to, you know, go to college and be one of those, like, top recruits or anything like that. So I was always, you know, um, up there, um, but, yeah. So in high school, like, what was your mental game in high school? Like, what would you say your mental toolbox was there? I mean. Did you see that early on that that's something that you wanted to follow, or yeah. or did it not did not come to later? Um, as a swimmer, like I think intuitively, like I understood, like you know, there's really talented swimmers, really gifted ones, and yet they weren't the ones who were always winning the races. And so I understood at an early age, it's like there's something else that's you know that's going on here. Um, 
it, when I went to college, I, I knew, like, I just wanted to marry my two passions for sport and psychology. So it was, it's been, you know, a great marriage ever since. Um, never looked back. And so um, I've always just been interested in, yeah, what is it, the difference that allows some performers just to, you know, reach your potential and just kind of reach those outer limits versus others who potentially are more talented on paper to not. And so we're going to touch on that because that's one of the questions I have. Like, what takes, where, you know, you, you just touched on something that's super important. Like, in sports, you have people that have all the talent in the world, and then you see these people who have, on paper, less talent, but they perform better. So we'll kind of talk about that as you move along. So you go to high school, you're a good swimmer, uh, better than average, kind of start to curiosities um, about how mindset, how the men motivation, mental side of it, and then you go to college. Did you go to college like it, with that in mind, like, hey, I'm going to follow sports psych? Absolutely, and uh, to the chagrin of my parents, because, you know, at that time in the 90s, um, sports psychology, like, no one was doing sports psychology, you're not applied sports psychology yet, so, um, which made me want to do it even more. <laughs> so, um, so I, um, so I was really studying psychology, like at a just kind of general level, um, and then in graduate school is where I specialized and focused on a clinical psychology program with a specialty in sport performance psychology. Nice. So, where did you go to school? Uh, my undergrad was at the University of Florida, so we're in Gainesville. Go Gators! It's interesting. And then. Um, and what did you get there? What was your undergrad? Psychology. Psychology. Mm -hmm. And yeah. then did you go right into a PhD? No. So I took a couple of years off, uh, gallivanted around the world. <laughs> I wasn't quite ready for the responsibility of uh, the real world yet. So I, uh, I worked for Club Med <laughs> for about two years. And uh, I you know, was a sailing instructor and a snorkeling instructor by day and um, kind of a... Uh, I don't know. Um, on stage by night. <laughs> so with, when you were when you worked at Club Med, yeah. um, so you did sports stuff. Mm -hmm. Did you use any of your psych background, or no? It just... uh, not in a formal way. Okay. Nice. So informal. <laughs> but I mean, just I mean, I was always fascinated about like human behavior. I mean, why? Why do people do it as they do, um, even when it's not beneficial and they know that? So. Um, I mean, and I'm still curious about that. So, like, give us uh, one good story from your club man. Oh, yeah, one no, good story. Oh, no. We need one good story because you can't go ahead. I mean, we, very seldom do we meet somebody who is in the inner workings of club net, so we need one good story from that. Just one. It doesn't have to be too crazy. But. I mean, mostly it was like a period in my life where um, I had the opportunity to do all these kind of wild and crazy things that I never would have done um, outside of Club Med, like be on stage. I mean, I'm, um, I, would, I would never expose myself to like, you know, <laughs> the spotlights and things like that, but there it wasn't a choice. Like you just by day work like your, your beach team and by night you provide the entertainment. And so um, probably one of the things I'll never forget is my first day, my first village rolling in. Um, I was um, told that I was going to be on stage that night for their Folly show, which is like a French kind of can-can display of 
feathers galore and fishnet stockings. So <laughs> any um, shyness that I ever had um, was quickly um, um, <laughs> extinguished. <laughs> so then you finish this period and then when do you say, hey, yeah. I want to go back to school? Like, yeah. I wanna I want to pursue this a yep. little bit further, like, because a lot of people, like, they get their psychology degree, mm -hmm. you know, they find another job in another field, or they become a school counselor or something, mm -hmm. but you take it, obviously, to the next level. Yeah, you know, it was, I don't, I don't know how, it was just something internally that's kind of like this time clock, I don't know, they just said, it's time to go, and it's time to, it's time to get into school mode, so... Um, so I did my PsyD at Argosy University, which is the Arizona School of Professional Psychology. So I moved from Florida um, to the Southwest in Phoenix um, and spent a good five years there. And that's where I really got in deep and really understanding the principles of um, psychology and sport. And then from there did an internship and a postdoc um, and have been really working with collegiate athletes and now youth athletes ever since. So, in the, in your undergrad, um, give us something that you learned in your undergrad that maybe some of some athletes can learn from. So, let's separate grad from undergrad. So, in your undergrad, um, what did you learn there? What what maybe one or two key things that maybe you can pull from that either has helped you in sport um, or helped someone somebody that you're working with or, or somebody you've spoken to? What, what did you learn in your undergrad? Yeah, you know, probably one of the most important classes I had was just a foundational or introductory sports psychology class at Florida. And it was there that I learned um, progressive muscle relaxation. And so that is definitely something that I use as a skill for myself when I'm racing and for my athletes. And so... Um, the essentials of progressive muscle relaxation are, is to really um, kind of a, a bottom-up model of tapping into that parasympathetic nervous system to regulate emotions. And so we're relaxing all those kind of autonomic systems around blood pressure and heart rate and muscle tension um, with the breath and with other just kind of visual cues where we tense the muscles and then release the muscles kind of systematically one muscle group at a time. So let's dive into that because that's, I've heard of this before, um, practiced, it, practiced it, probably not so to any great success, but so for example, do you have a starting point? Do you start from the bottom, from your feet, and then work your way up, or do you start from the way down? Either way, it just depends on the individual. And so, um, yeah, uh, we, so I usually do a top-down model. So, you know, it just might just kind of guide an athlete with just kind of relaxing kind of the muscles around the face, um, you know, around the cheeks, the eyes, the jaw, a lot of tension is in the jaw. Um, and so, again, it's by both tensing, so they kind of realize what the tension feels like and then letting go and knowing what that feels like. Um, and so, and then over time, a lot of times we just take away the tensing and just do the releasing, um, as now we know how to do that. And so then it's just progr uh, passive progressive muscle relaxation versus the active progressive muscle relaxation. So the tension allows mm -hmm. a rookie um, to feel that area. Yeah, exactly. Where a veteran who's done this knows to just release that area. Yeah, so if we were to do it right now, I'd say like I take your right hand and tense your fist as hard as you can, as hard as you can, as hard as you can. Keep squeezing, keep squeezing, squeeze, squeezing. And then let it go. 
just completely let so it go. So breathing too, yeah. releasing the breath as well. Yeah. And then it feels light. Yeah. And so again, so it's really biofeedback um, for our brain and nervous system to understand what happens physiologically and psychologically when we are in a state of tension or anxiety and really how usually not productive that is and so then how to release it. So you're coaching, the way I see this, and so let's take a swim for example. Swimmers, if I go and watch a triathlon at the beginning of a triathlon, everyone is tense. Everybody's tense, like, or you know, yeah. a lot of people are tense, and I'm sure you observe it, but I observe it, and I watch people who are super tense. Start of a road race, everyone's yeah. tense. So this is something where you could potentially tighten, release, and relax. Absolutely. And that it, would that be a proper application of that, or would it? I would assume. I mean, I'll let you speak on Yeah, uh, for, for the beginner who's still um, maybe not aware of where they hold tension in their body um, naturally, yes. Um, for someone who already kind of has that skill set, they don't need to tense anymore, they can just cue themselves to, oh, notice that and just release it. And it, it's so it's kind of like, oh, hey, neck, there you are. Let me breathe into that and just let my shoulders just kind of drop. That's awesome. So in the um, early stages, Maybe you set time, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, an hour, whatever, to go through maybe the entire body of mm -hmm. doing that. And then over time you create awareness. And then at that point you show up to race day and you feel that tension in your head, your legs, whatever, neck. And then at that point you can release that tension. Absolutely. Huh. And what does tension cause? Like when somebody's tense, so whether it's in road racing or or, or triathlon or, or any sport. You coach, mm -hmm. or you work with a lot of athletes, coach a lot of athletes in a lot of sports. What does tension cause? <laughs> Wait, so how is it caused is the one question. And then so and then what does it do? What does it create? Yeah, both. You can answer both. That's a great yeah. Well, psychologically, um, I'm probably even more interested on how because what creates stress and anxiety and that tension for you is going to be different than me. Yep. Why? That's based on our perception of the situation and based on our perception of our ability to cope with it. Um, and so, I mean, I think that's the coolest thing that I learned actually later in my studies, which is the cognitive model. And this is from Aaron T. Beck, who basically said that, um, yeah, it's, it's not, we once thought that it was the stimulus equals response. But actually, it's stimulus gap response, and in that gap is our cognitions, our thoughts, our perceptions. This is all learned behavior, and so how I'm perceiving the situation, again, my ability to cope, is then going to have a direct relationship to my emotions, that physiological response, and that behavioral response. So, um, what we're really trying to train athletes to do under pressure situations is through adaptation, but through um, mental skills on how to create that ideal response set to pressure. And so part of that is then first the awareness and knowing what those maybe maladaptive patterns of thinking are that again create that stress response, and then how to both top down and bottom up change the perceptions through cognitive reframing, but also create those skills as far as self-regulation and emotional regulation for the nervous system to create that consistency so that we can really 
more consistently be playing at our zone or just potential level. So you say top down, bottom up. Explain that a little bit. So top down, what I mean by top down is like really looking at um, thinking first. And again, perceptions and how that influences emotions, physiology, and behavior. And bottom up is more working from like that nervous system response and that behavioral response to also change um, perception because it's all linked. And so, um, so yeah, um, you know, so athlete A can be at race um, venue and think, oh shit, right? Um, this is this is gonna be terrible. Like, I'm gonna suffer. I'm gonna come in last. Um, like you know, my training wasn't good enough. And so you can just already imagine now the tension that's happening in the muscles. And um, what's going on physiologically is that fight or flight response from the parasympathetic nervous system is starting to turn up. Or sorry, the sympathetic nervous system is starting to turn up. Um, there's probably kind of um, now kind of as what that tension comes in. Now perhaps. Um, that just response, whether whatever it is the sport is, is going to also be more strained and tense. Um, there's going to be more errors. And that is actually probably going to reinforce in those thoughts of, yeah, see, this is sucks, this is terrible, I'm not going to be able to finish this, this is awful. <laughs> so top-down model, really looking at what those maladaptive thought patterns are and creating more adaptive ones to change that response set. So this is great. So, <clears throat> you get into a race. I'm going to give you an example. And I want to, if you can tell me what you would tell someone to fix that. So, I'm going to use road racing for an mm -hmm. example. So, road racing, we show up, right? We have these tensions, these, these patterns that we're, we haven't broken. So, because there's a, in my opinion, there's a reason why winners win. Like the same person wins and wins. And it's not always genetics, and I think that you know we're kind of on the same page of this. Yeah, there are those people, but there are those people who fall into that same pattern over and over again. So maybe they had some bad experiences, non whatever success, uh, failures, whatever. They get into the race, they get into the moment, and then they're feeding like this happens, and it's feeding that into them like, oh shit, I did that again, or fuck, I made that mistake again, and um, and so that's feeding that system. Is that correct? Like, yeah, absolutely. And then how, like, what? How do you break that? Like, I know it's like I know it's not a simple answer, correct? Because it's like if, if it was, you would write a book and you would make millions of dollars and people. Would Actually, it is simple. It just takes a lot of time. And so, I mean, the cognitive model is all about. It's essentially stasis is all a learned process. So it can be unlearned. So what is maladaptive can be made adaptive to create those response sets that are desirable. Um, and this is not just in like performance sense, this is in like, you know, a clinical setting too. So the whole cognitive model is really based around looking at, you know, serious um, mental illness like depression and anxiety disorders. And so uh, if we can change the thought patterns of these individuals, we can also cultivate different emotional responses and behavior responses. And so, so yeah, so we can, step one is we need to first be aware of what these thought patterns are and how they again are either adaptive for us or maladaptive. And then step two is in beginning to really edit these and so um, to again then create that shift emotionally, physiologically, and behaviorally. So let's, let's break that down three things. So, mm -hmm. um, and I won't, I'll forget this. So the maladaptive. 
I can't do this. This is too hard. Like, I'm never going to win. X racer always beats me. Okay, so that's the maladaptive. And then the adaptive. That, um, no, um, I can do this. And not just to bullshit and lie to ourselves, but again, focusing on what the controllables are, those task things, and bring the attention there, which is going to increase hopefully more ease. Um, and then again, the focus is now directed onto what are the controllables and what we can do. So in the moment, focus on the adaptive, the controllables. Um, how does anger factor into it? So for example, making yourself pissed, like, fuck, I'm not going to fall into this maladaptive approach again. I'm going to, you know, can anger be used in a positive way to change that or no? Is that a bad tool? Because I fear, use anger, use, you know, certain tools that you know, from lay people who aren't. Yeah. It depends. It depends on the athlete. It depends on their background. Anger, for some people, can be a great mobilizer um, for attention and for effort, and that sustained effort through hard things. But for other people, it can dysregulate them and actually interfere. So it just depends. Okay. So, and then, so we have maladaptive, adaptive, and then the physiological physiology of it, like how does that, where do you see that playing into it? Yeah, it's all connected again, I mean, you know, back in the 16th century with, you know, Descartes, we separated mind and body and kind of specialized in working in one area versus the other, but anything that I'm thinking is having this mirrored response in my nervous system, my physiology, from again, from these autonomic systems like heart rate, blood pressure, to um, again, temperature, to um, um, you know, muscle tension. Um, so this is this this happens automatically. It's not even controlled. Um, so, what was the question? <laughs> so if we went, so for ex if we're in a race and we see us going through that pattern mm -hmm. again, right? We go through that pattern. Okay. We're telling ourselves, man, here we go again. Mm -hmm. I'm doing this again. You know, I can't get to the front of the race. Um, you know, this guy's going to win again. I'm in the bad position. I'm making the wrong moves. Mm -hmm. So from the adaptive, we say, hey. Um, at that point, we would take it as it comes, you know, follow the yeah. process, you yeah. know, control the controllables, like, right. hey, I'm in the fucking back of the race, I need to be at the front of the race, right. or hey, I'm at the back, let's put in the effort. Mm -hmm. um, and then the physiological thing that I see happen to a lot of athletes is it causes additional fatigue, causes stress, yes. cramping, the, yes. um, heart rate goes up, exactly. uh, nutrition goes to shit, exactly. and then they lose like all control of everything. Exactly. So their attention now is in the wrong place, exactly. And now they're exerting too much effort and they're in the wrong place. And yeah, um, that's uh, not not beneficial. And so in, in a way to practice this, like, so obviously in a race environment, like that's not so here's what here's what I would do with you or one of your athletes and so I'd sit down with you and I'd have you just take a sheet of paper and think of a race in your mind um, that I don't know, just really went terribly but also I want to know about a race that went really really well right so we're kind of looking at sort of like these two ideas but and the race that went maybe terribly what were those automatic thoughts that came up? Like you just kind of scrolled through, like at the start line. This is even like before the race even started, right? Probably the night before, about kind of all this, a lot of this is negative kind of thinking about 
um, our own inadequacies or self-doubts and things like that. And so we just kind of like write all those down. And then on the other side of the paper, we do this like editing process, right? And again, it's not to just um, like whitewash over it. It's not just, we're not lying to ourselves. What we are is we're trying to make it a more adaptable thought which is then going to create, again, that response set that we're wanting to have under pressure. And so that thought of, um, you know, Sally, uh, she always wants to, or she's a climber, or I'm not a good climber. Right. Hey, I've had that thought. Sure. <laughs> is, well, maybe um, um, climbing is not my strength, um, but you know what? Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay within, like, you know, my my tempo and this zone, and um, I'm going to focus on really kind of, like, you know, coming up right here, right there, right? So it's not that we're saying like, yeah, I'm a great climber, but um, what are my strengths and what are these things that I can attend to at this time to create that different emotional, physiological, behavioral response set that we want, which is essentially to persist under times of duress, right? So, I mean, that's great. That's exactly something tangible that people can take away and use like tomorrow, like, they can implement that. They can write down their race. They can, you know, start to break it down and use that tomorrow. So I'm going to put you on the spot. What is the thing that you say to yourself when things go right? Like when you get to uh, the start line mm -hmm. or whether the night before or the week before, what, what's the thing that you've struggled with personally? Mm, dang it, Roy. <laughs> yeah. no, we ask hard questions here. Um, well, um, I've been... God, I mean, I've been racing for a long time. I've never really stopped. It's just the sports have changed. So I've gotten better and better at managing this. What I do for myself is I'll create a game plan um, the week before. And actually, this is something that I do with my coach, i.e. you, in combination, um, because I know the targets and things that I want to execute, giving the conditions of the race. Um, it doesn't matter so much on who's going to show up. And so then... This is sort of this framework that I create in my mind, um, you know, with some good self-talk techniques on like really these kind of efficient kind of verbal cues on what that looks like, saying that in the positive tense and the present tense, um, and also using imagery to really see that in my mind's eye and to practice that ideal response. Um, that's how I do it. So when you say imagery, you're talking about, are you talking about visualization? Yes, um, but it's more than just eyes, right? We're using all of our senses, um, kinesthetic awareness, smell, taste, if there's any sound is very important. So we're using all those senses in our imagery script to make it more real, because the more real it is, then the more, the more real it is in our mind, then the more real it is in our body. So when you say senses, because you're using all the senses, basically, mm -hmm. sight, sound, taste. So when you, like, are you thinking of what it tastes like or smells like? Or, so that's your visualization. You're, hey, this is race day. This is the yeah. salt water. This is... Yeah, I'm smelling, I'm seeing the scene, like, in a big, like, I don't know, big picture frame first. And noticing the smells, the sounds, like, the electricity, the tension kind of like in the air, what's going on in my own muscles. And then I kind of like, I pan down, like kind of like in a more kind of narrow frame and kind of focus more on my own heartbeat and regulating that, my own just kind of muscle tension and softening that and my own mind on what I, is that I need to accomplish at that given time. And, and then the body just kind of follows. So 
you take it from a broad approach and then you bring it down to maybe the areas where you're like, hey, my heart rate, bring that down. Technique. When I was taught visualization, which was probably like 14 or 15, we just lay down and we're in our mind and we're rehearsing and it's really like not even that broad of a focus. Um, it was just like, hey, um, think about how, you know, being on the podium, think about how it is to win, think about, so you're seeing yourself doing it, like you're, you're, you're on the outside looking in at yourself, but it sounds like you, your approach or the approach today, because this is a long time ago, um, the approach now is to like be in it and to grab all the senses and then bring it down. 